Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley, and it is 11-14-2021, and we're continuing our service with the thought of the week and uh, morning prayer. We were, uh, I believe we have Dwight. Go right ahead, Dwight. Thank you very much, Doug. Um, so here we have the thought of the week called Temple Purpose. The temple gives visibility to God. When we think of the Old Testament sanctuary, God was veiled from man for the most part. After God miraculously freed the Israelites from Egypt, for a short time they were left alone in the desert without Moses. It wasn't very long before they manufactured a golden calf representing God and worshipped him. Man's inclination was to create God for himself using earthly material or worshiping objects in the sky. How could they come to know this invisible God? What is he like? How can we approach him to learn of him? Questions abound for us. Um, questions abound for sure. And man, with his idolatrous ways, rush to fill in the blank. God wants to reveal himself, but of course, it must be done on his terms. God's vision of how he would accomplish it is given to us in this age. There is, quote, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began, unquote. And that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. We are certainly blessed by God to know this private information. And for sure, I feel privileged to be the recipient of this divine disclosure. I feel special to be chosen for God's purposes. However, the secrets of his heart are not for me alone. It is God's will that all creation be the recipients of this glorious plan. This information, quote, which was not made known to men in other generations, unquote, is now made known to all through Christ and his church. And that's taken from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. Through this new church age temple, the secret thoughts of God are no longer secret. And that is the thought of the week. I'd like to offer a little commentary something that came to mind and I think um, comes to light too in this thought of the week. We've heard, the, we've probably heard the phrase, uh, the cliche that the devil is in the detail. You know, when, when it comes to wanting something and how you go about getting it, it seems to be two different things. Um, but if the devil is in the details, then God is certainly in the distinction. And those distinctions need to be made on God's terms. We cannot assume that because God started with Israel, that we are just an extension of it. We need to make the distinction between what God did then and what God is doing in this church age. And certainly nothing like him revealing his private thoughts are a part of what the Old Testament Israelites had. And this is something extremely um, reserved and, and blessed. Uh, we are blessed with this information.
information that God has kept hidden uh, for all this time until the church age, and, that, and it was destined for our glory uh, even before creation. So before anything was even created, um, God had these plans all worked out. And these distinctions are critical to understanding what God has done for us. So let us make sure that we're on point with his purpose in, for us in this church age, rather than thinking that it's only the devil we need to worry about as far as details and concerns. And that's my thought on the commentary of the photo week, and we'll turn it over to Fred for prayer. Thank you. At this time, uh, we're going to bring forth the prayer. Uh, is there anyone in need of prayer request? Yeah, I pray for uh, a friend of mine. Her name is Gentry. Suffering from multiple sclerosis. Okay. Okay, if there's uh, no more requests at this time, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this wonderful day, Lord, this opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. Asking, Lord, that you will continually bless and keep this church as we go forward with a mission to bring forth the, his word, which is truth. And asking, Lord, that you pray for our pastor and as you continue to reveal and uh, things in your word and we're praying for all the members of the church that and their families uh, that you will continue to bless and keep them uh, in particular Lord we're bringing forth Gentry who you know her problems that you would watch over uh, and keep her in your prayers uh, continue to bless and keep her and your will may be done asking Lord that Kenny, our brother-in-law, who continues uh, down a path that you would intercede, Lord, in his behalf, him and Gail and his family, and continue, Lord, to work in their behalf. Thanking you, Lord, for um, the fact that we have this opportunity to worship you and to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, asking, Lord, that, again, get referring back to our church, that we may continue, Lord, to reveal and uh, through this message that it might, that its outreach might be worldwide and it might be heard through, you know, as this meeting we're using it might be heard and it might be to the furtherance of this gospel. These things, Lord, we ask in Christ's loving name who paid the penalty for our sins. In Christ's name, thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank thank you both, Fred and Dwight, for Amen. for taking care of those things. And um, so we are 
We do have some notes today, so referring to your notes, we are in John chapter 17 and verse 2. It says, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So this is where we are in verse 2, and you have notes we have read in the Word of God about our condition in Adam. Quote, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin, my mother did my mother conceive me, unquote. That's Psalm 51.5 from the King James Version. Shapen in iniquity is what we, how we see that. Even though we can quote this verse from memory, it takes God the Holy Spirit for us to truly understand our helpless and hopeless condition and cry out for help like the Apostle Paul, quote, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, unquote. That's Romans 7, 24. God's salvation plan is equipped with the enlightenment of our desperate need of salvation as well as its deliverance through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just as we must understand our true condition, we will come to see and appreciate God's fitting solution to our dilemma. So there we are just looking at this verse and Digging in, there is much to cover here. A lot of thoughts that are revealed from the words that are used, from the phrases here. So we'll get right to it. There's a lot of verses to cover. The first thought is, for you have granted him authority over all people. And my first thought there is, as God, Jesus already has authority over all people or flesh. And why? So the, why it says all people is really sarks. We'll get to that a little later, but it's just how NIV translated sarks as all people. In, in any case, this authority has been granted, if you think about it. it's not. And I already said that Jesus Christ already has authority over all people. And why would I say such a thing? In Colossians 1, 16 through 18, which we will read, this is why Jesus has authority. He says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven, uh, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So when we read that, obviously, uh, Christ being the creator of all things, rightfully the creator has authority. So that leads us to the next point. Uh, the word always existed and is the creator of all things. 
There's no doubt about it. We read that in John 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So as God uh, and creator of all things, he definitely has the right and the authority over those things uh, for which he creates. So, so then I go on in point B and say, but this new identity created through the incarnation had a beginning. So that's interesting. When you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, you put those two verses together, which many have done. It said, in the beginning was the word, word was with God, the word was God. And then you go down to verse 14. We know God never had a beginning because it says in the beginning, the word was. So, but when we look at verse 14, <laughs> then it clearly tells us, and the I'm going to read it just so we can have it on the table. John 1, 14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So whoever we saw in John 1, 1 through 3, where it says in the beginning was the word and the word, when we, that person who was there in the beginning and whatever beginning that was, it wasn't the beginning of the word because the word was. But that, then you go down to verse 14. We know that's God, obviously, created all things. Nothing was created without him. But then in verse 14, the same word became flesh. So, I mean, even without trying to prove anything here, I can easily say that the word is God. And the word now, becoming flesh, means he took on human nature. He was born into the world and made his dwelling, notice, among us, us human beings. So when you think about the word becoming flesh, he's talking about the word became a human being. That's how you have to see that. And with that understanding, you have right before you the God-man. He's, he, uh, hold on, let me see, I hear some background noise. I'm just going to, just make your, please make sure your phone is on mute. I will help you out if we need to here. Okay, so, so that right there in front of us, what do we have? We have the God man. I mean, literally in two scriptures, and there's quite a few more, but Wow. In my mind, I really like the simplicity of it. Point C, we also have a, have a direct, or should be, we also have direct statements of the son's authority. Uh, and, we're, and this is from him himself, and this is in John 5, 23 through 29. I'm going to turn there, John 5, 23 through 29. So it says, um, well, I could go to 22 just to make sure we pick up the context. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. 
Now, when we're talking about the son here, we have to know who he's talking about. Is he talking about Jesus as God? Because Jesus as God already has all the honor that the father has. They are equal. That's what we saw in Philippians. Although he, was, he had equality with God, that's what it says in Philippians chapter 2. So whatever comes with him being God, there is honor because of his position over all creation. He's God. And so here in this statement, it is saying that the son, who is the son? He's talking about not only the word who became flesh. And we know the word did not become flesh in the sense that he's no longer God. Because if you're God, you can't just decide to stop being God. That is your nature. So that's why we say he's the God man. Now, we won't get into the full detail of that because... We'll wait until we arrive at a scripture that deals with it in detail. But what we have here already is the fact that the God-man is the one who has been granted authority. So with this, and that's, this new identity that Christ has took on, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So not only is he... He had his dwelling among God because that was the word, but now he has made his dwelling among us, those who are human. He, is, he has two natures, but he's still one person. He's not two persons. He's one person. And, but but who, what about this new identity? How should we look at him? What do we think of him? Because when we look at Christ, all we can see is a man walking around. But when the father looks at Christ, he's saying, there's more. He is a man, yes. He is true humanity. But I see more. So what is the father doing with this person who has two natures? He's granting him authority. And he is granting him equal honor that he himself has. The father is granting him equal honor. Think about that for a second. If Jesus was less than God, and we're not talking about Jesus who created all things, you know, the word, all that. He has always existed as God. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this new identity of who Jesus is. If he was less than God, how could the Father say that this new entity, who is the God-man, deserves the same honor as the Father who sent him. That verse 23 is profound. Even if you didn't think that Jesus was God, let's say you didn't think so, you, you must honor him in the same manner as God. Now, for you to do that, requires, you know, God is saying, don't bow down or worship anybody on this earth except me. I'm God. And yet, Christ deserves the honor as God as well. I can't even finish reading the rest of the verse here. Let's keep going. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. 
uh, let me see. Is that where we wanted to continue? Yeah, we were going to go all the way to verse 29, uh, 25. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of, of Man. Now notice he was calling himself the Son of God previously in the chapter. But then uh, he's calling himself now the Son of Man. So here you have it again. He uses the term son, son of God, and son of man. Again, more information about his identity and some of the titles that are used of him. Do not be amazed at this. Well, we ought to be because this is a man we're talking about. We're not talking about some voice from heaven that says, I'm God. Listen to me. Right? We're talking about a man that is walking around eating and drinking just like the rest of us here. And this man is saying to you that this is what has been given. What, this is the authority that has been given to him to judge because, because he is the son of man. Don't be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. He's talking about his voice and come out. Those who have done good, done what is good, will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. <clears throat> so notice, uh, I'm going back to our notes here. There's a lot more to cover, but I should at least make the point that for the Father to grant this new identity, who is, as we say, the God-man. So when we say Jesus Christ or Jesus, that's who we're talking about now. Obviously, we already know, we read in, in the first point that through Christ, all things were created, all things. So we, we're, we're very aware of that already. So it's not something that we need to think about. God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first verse in Genesis that we encounter. So let's keep going. Uh, point D is where we are, 1D, over all people, for you granted him authority over all people, literally over all flesh. That's, even though we flesh is used in terms of the sin nature, the sinful nature, the flesh, it is a metaphor for the sinful nature that we have. <clears throat> the sinful nature is not only what flesh craves, but it is also things that are invisible, which thoughts can be sinful. So literally over all flesh, or all people, I think it's sufficient to say, but we should know that all people in this world are condemned through, because of the bad news, uh, from Adam. So Christ has authority over all flesh, and we're going to talk about more reasons for that. That's more reasons the Son has authority over of all flesh. Let's look at it. I just have three reasons here. Uh, and the first one is, he earned the right to be the Savior of the world 
by being judged for all sins. Now, we've got a couple verses here, and I'm going to go through them quickly. And the first one's 1 Timothy 4, 9 through 11. And stay with me. 1 Timothy 4, 9 says, This is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. I would say so too. That that is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people. Interesting. The living God. Who is that? Who's the savior of all people? Jesus. Who has been the one that's been given authority? Jesus. Right? So he's the savior of all people. Who, that's, who, who is also God. <laughs> but then he goes on and says, and especially of those who believe. So we would have to say, if he's making a distinction of people who believe, we would have to say that he's the savior of people who don't believe as well. That makes sense to me. So Christ is the Savior. So how did he become the Savior of all people? Well, he paid for the sins of all people. right? He, that's how he became the Savior of all people. We can read that in, in 1 Timothy. Oh, oh, I want to read uh, 1 Timothy 4.11, which is the last verse. Command and teach these things. In other words, this is something people should know. It, is, don't, it may not be common knowledge, but it needs to be taught and understood. So 1 Timothy 2, we're talking about all people, chapter uh, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Now notice, Jesus is the God-man. He is also a sufficient mediator between God and mankind because... He has both natures, the man, Christ Jesus. And what did he do? He gave himself as a ransom for all people. That is, that is now been witnessed, at, uh, witnessed to at the proper time. In other words, Christ came at a point in time. He did die on the cross under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. And we, he went through the death, burial, and resurrection. So there you have, uh, back to our notes here. That's the first point. And then there's 2 Peter 2.1. I'm going there really quick. I said I was going to go quick. So 2 Peter 2 and then 1. Peter says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there were, will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. These are false teachers. These are some of the things they'll do. Introduce destructive heresies. And here it is, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So these are people who enter the church and teach these pernicious, destructive heresies they're not saved. Why are they not saved? Because they deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. So Christ has a right to be their savior. Why? Because he paid for all of their sins. They chose to deny him, which means they are in the category of lost. Yet 
there's going to be destruction and God's going to have to judge them because they are messing with God's church, his people. So God's not going to stand for that. And then there's 1 John 2, 2, which we know. Um, 1 John 2, we've covered this many times. I bet you can just quote it. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, Christ, that is. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, we know that everybody in the whole world is not going to be saved. But Christ died for their sins, but obviously they're going to be like the category of the Second Peter 2.1. Uh, they will deny the Lord, even though he did all that for them. They're going to deny him. That's how uh, they're going to end up lost. But notice, Christ has earned the right to become the savior of the world. We're going to point two in our notes. What else did he do? He triumphed over Satan and has the right to rule this world. So that's, he will have authority, and that's Colossians 2.15, uh, another familiar verse. I'll just read it quickly. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Christ defeated uh, the, the angelic forces that were against him. And he now has taken rulership of this world from angelic forces. Remember, Satan is an angel. And now he has the right to rule. And that's why, now all of this, we must say, is in the plan of the Father. As we continue on uh, to, in our notes, point three, as a result of his work on earth, Christ was raised to supreme authority over all. And the, the one verse that, the couple verses, Ephesians 1, 18 through 23, this is like a Bible study here. Hopefully you stand up with me. Uh, Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. I pray also, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in, the, in his holy people. And here it is, verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And now we're going to talk about that power. That power is the same. Notice, I'm going to say it again. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Well, we just talked about he defeated the angelic forces, right? So it took power for him to do that. So this power is also a part of what we have. And it's, this is the point Paul is making. If you look at verse uh 18, he's praying that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may see this. Two things. And this is the second thing. One is his, the riches of his glorious inheritance. The second is his incomparably great power. Now he's explaining what that power is like. It's the same as his mighty strength when, that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So you could say you triumphed over angels and you were raised and so forth. Except we didn't fight. You know why we didn't fight? Because Christ fought for us. We stand in his victory. The fact that we, it says that we are raised and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? 
is not because we earned the right to be there. It's because Christ earned that right for us and we're in him. That's why we have the right to be able to sit in, heavenly, in the heavenly realms in Christ. So he exerted when he raised, this is verse, back to verse 20, that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God, so, so notice those words, that is future as well. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, even for the church, as we saw in Colossians as well, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So even though <clears throat> he's talking about what we need to see about ourselves that we come to learn, he uses this analogy about we have the same thing as what happened to Christ, where he was raised up, to that point uh, because of power. And that, that power is not, when we think about this position that Christ is in, it is not something that a man, you would think, would be in. But yet, we're not just talking about any man, we're talking about the God-man. And that is who we are identified with, the God-man. So one of, one of these days, we need to stop turn the corner and talk about what does this make of us? Who are we then if we're in this uh, lofty position that is identified with the person of Christ? Let's go to uh, Philippians chapter 2, which is our second verse in this context here. Philippians chapter 2, you already know about this one because of Christ's coming. He did not consider equality with God something to be uh, used to his own advantage. That's verse 6. Seven, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And then he he went to the, he, 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 he found himself in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Here it is. So we're talking about exalted him to the highest place. Is he saying the place that is next to him? Because we're talking about the man, Christ Jesus, right? Who went to the cross, died for our sins. So we're not just talking about his deity. Because remember, deity could never lower itself to debase itself. Deity is what it is. So we're talking about what happened in his humanity. And in his humanity, his humanity has with his deity, the, the person who occupies both of those natures because of his sacrifice. This is what God the Father does. He raised him, he exalted him to the highest place. Well, we already read what that place is. Far above all principality and power and any title that could be named in, in this age or in any future age. Gave him, and therefore God exalted him in the highest place and gave him a name, a title that is above every title. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all the places where people's souls are. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. So why is glory of God the Father? Because the Father, we got to stop and remember that the Father has ordained all of this. It is not a surprise that all of a sudden, oh, you did that? Oh, I'm so pleased that you, you, that you went to the cross and you paid for the sins. It's all the plan of the Father. This is not some secondary, well, let's, oh, man, sin, well, what are we going to do? Oh, maybe we'll send uh, the Savior. Maybe we'll allow the sins to be... No, all of this was planned before time began. Before God created anything, he already had it all figured out. It'd be like a contractor trying to build a house with no blueprints. He, 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 just, he says, well, I'll just figure it out as I go. No, God already had the plan, and it's God the Father. And his exaltation of Christ is according to that plan. Even... The creation of all things is according to that plan. And, and verse 11, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What, what is that? We have to stop and think. Let's keep going. We're still in point one. We've got some moving to do. Point E, authority, exosia. So that's what that word means. Uh, and I'm just giving you, there's a couple definitions for power. And one is dunamis, and the other one is exousia. There's a couple more, but they're the most, the primary uses are those two words that you will find where, where power and authority is used. So I'm not going to go through all of this, but these, this word is the word that was used in our verse. So I'm going to save time, let you read this. Uh, look at this delegated influence, authority, jurisdiction, liberty, power, right, strength. All of those words at the end of this definition could be used. Point F. The son executes the plan of salvation from the father and is the focal point of salvation for all. But we should remember it is the Father's plan. And so you might say, well, okay, so Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. He did. But why did Jesus pay it all? Because he was operating according to a plan. No verse speaks of that as clear as some of these. Well, this verse I'm going to point out. There's more verses. I wouldn't say no verse speaks as clear. But this verse speaks pretty clearly. That the Father is involved in this. So this is what Jesus says in verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes what? His word? Uh, believes him who sent me. Now that's, I always found that to be curious. You know, I used to, this verse has a lot to say about salvation, how uh, the three things, they receive eternal life, they will not be judged, they will cross over from death to life. But this part right here was always curious to me. Didn't say believes in Jesus Christ, but it says believes him who sent me. What do we mean believes? Well, obviously who sent him, well, we could quickly say is the father. So salvation depends not on just believing the words of Christ, but you got to believe that the father sent Christ. Remember, Christ is the mediator between God and man. And we're talking about reconciliation. 
how sinful, condemned man, dead, spiritually dead man, can be reconciled with a righteous father. So how do we do it? Well, Christ is the mediator between God and man. He's the one who was judged for the sins and, and we was, he, he earned the righteousness and so forth. And, that, and through him, through faith in him, we can be reconciled. So it speaks of all of this as according to a plan, not just happenstance, not just piecemeal along the way. It is according to the Father's plan. And Jesus is acknowledging that because he is on the earth at this time fulfilling, being obedient to the Father's plan. So that's how, and then it's the verse, the chapter we're in, John 17, 3, which is the next verse, says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you. Look at this. So it's not just you have eternal life and you get to know Jesus. It is that they they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So there you have, we're going to tackle this verse next week, obviously. We're not going to talk about it this week. But it already says that having eternal life is about knowing the Father. And here we saw in the previous verse that they believe him, Jesus says, who sent me. So it's not just what hear his word, believe him, who sent me? Interesting. So back to our notes. Let's keep going. That was point F. We're going on to point number two here. For you have granted him authority over all people. Point number two says that he might give eternal life. Let's talk about eternal life for a moment here. My question is, what is eternal life? And I'm going to answer it by a direct statement of God. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's Romans 6.23, the last half of it. Well, just to note, I didn't quote the first half, so I wanted it to be neat. <laughs> but the first half talks about the wages sin bring, the wages of sin is death. How come the wages of sin is death? Well, through one man, sin into the world, and, and death through sin. And in this way, says Romans 5, 12, death spread to all people. So the first half of Romans six twenty three, I, I should point out, is often used in gospel tracts, people trying to witness about the gospel, but they make that out to be your personal sins. They say, well, yeah, you know, the wages of sin is death. So the fact that you sin, and uh, that's why you, you died. But that's not what that verse says. That verse is really talking about the two Adams. Talking about the first Adam, the wages sin pays is death. I just quoted Romans five twelve, where that's how we got dead, through the one sin of Adam. We weren't even here. And then, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the two Adams, what both of them brought to the table, the first Adam brought condemnation, spiritual death, and the the last Adam brings justification, eternal life, and such and such, right? So that is how uh, that verse should be viewed, not from the standpoint that, oh, your personal sins somehow matter. They do matter. 
but they don't matter in terms of your condemnation and your spiritual death. That all happened because of Adam. So we just got to make sure we get the bad news correct. And maybe that's too much to put on a little track. I don't know, but uh, they don't usually don't include that. So, but that is how that goes. So, so eternal life, it's the gift of God. It is not re a reward. It is not earned. It's a gift. It's something that God has granted us freely because of our faith in Christ. So faith is not work, obviously. Faith is not earning. Faith does not include works. If it did, it would be a contradiction of the word gift here. And also you would see it says free in other places. Point B. Uh, this, is, this is a quote from from Jesus again in John 6 40 it says for my father's will and here's a very important verse and what I'm trying to say my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him them up at the last day so John 6 40 is, is key is pretty much what I've been trying to say that the father ordained all of this and which is why it believes him who sent me right this is the plan of salvation that was uh, a part of God's eternal purpose it's a component part of God's eternal purpose we have to see it that way because we now see it, it's not in only in Jesus's hands Jesus had a tremendous task uh, to be have received the imputation of all the sins of the world and to be judged for the sins that's a humongous task he shouldered that he did it he endured the cross so yes he deserves honor and praise as well point number c let's get into some thoughts on eternal life so there's for me you know what i when I say thoughts on eternal life, I, there were so many things about eternal life in Scripture that I couldn't just catalog every Scripture and give you the thoughts. But I just wanted to give my general thoughts on it, and here they are. <clears throat> as human beings, point number one is, as human beings, our lives will continue forever, either with God according to our calling. In other words, uh, we are heavenly people. Uh, our calling is we're going to be in, in heaven. This is where we belong. Or in the lake of fire. Now this is, I, I have often, maybe this isn't a, a verse that you were thinking about, but I wanted to bring this to your attention. So Matthew twenty five forty six. if you've got your Bible out, I want you to turn to this one. If you've been just gating all along and not turning to the verses, well, turn to this one. This is an important one. So Matthew 25, 46, it's the last verse in Matthew 25, where he talks about when he comes back and some, he, he divides the people, the left, and then those on the right, the sheep and the goats, he gives the analogy. And then they say, well, what happened? Why didn't... You know, uh, I'll, I'll skip back to verse 44. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, 
truly I tell you, whatever you did, you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it. You would, you did not do for me. <clears throat> so then it's all over with the reasoning and all that. So this is what he says in verse forty-six. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So when, when I was raised, my religious training said there was no, you know, you know, once there was no eternal punishment. This is how uh, they thought of it. They said, well, when you burn in Lake, you know, yeah, you're going to burn, but you're going to burn up. it'll be over for you. There won't be any more you. You, God will just like erase you, like take an eraser out, just erase you. There is no eternal punishment, like lake of fire. In fact, they, they frowned on that. Now, I know that's not true for a lot of people, but it is true for where I came from as Seven Day Adventists. They think that, and they're very proud to say that, oh, well, that's not true. That's not even humane. I remember hearing him say, well, even a horse, if a horse is suffering, we put him out of his misery, we shoot the horse. But God wouldn't do that for us. So this is how they fix their reasoning. Uh, But it's human reasoning. But if we have eternal life, this verse says it clearly. Our eternal life and our eternal punishment is the same. Some will go away into eternal life. And the same Greek word is used for eternal life. And the other ones are going away into eternal punishment. Well, what kind of word is that? Same word that is used for eternal life. So no, eternal separation and punishment from God lasts as long as your eternal life lasts. Nobody questions that our eternal life is limited. Well, maybe there are some people who say your salvation is <laughs> is not permanent, which they are uh, grossly wrong. But but eternal life is as long as eternal punishment. That's the point in these verses uh, that I'm trying to make. Hopefully, you have that and you have the documentation for it, and you know why. There's other verses that say the same thing as well, just so you know. I just wanted to point one out for you. So that is uh, the first point, point A. And the reason I said that, because we're still... um, Oh, actually, no, that's not point A. Uh, That's point number uh, one in our notes of some thoughts on eternal life. Point C, uh, one. And um, that's what we were trying to say, that... Uh, human beings, our lives will continue forever as human beings. Well, it might not be in heaven, it might not be on earth, but it will be in punishment, either with God, according to our calling, or in the lake of fire. Now, um, point number two, eternal life does not only speak of duration. So just that's the point I'm making. It's, it's not about how long a person exists. Like, we're thinking our life, once we die, that's it. I know a lot of people think that. Once you die, you're done. There is no more you. That's not true. After we die, for sure, there is a, we continue on 
depending on what decision we made about Christ and this world. So eternal life does not only speak of duration, but the quality of this life. We do not have it from Adam. So God has not given us something that we already have. You could say we already have forever life because we're always going to exist once God has created us. He's not going to ever rub us out or, uh, you know, or do away with us, erase us. He's not going to do that because he has integrity. He has honor. He created us and he's not going to say, well, you know, I made a mistake when I created that one. I'm just going to have to just get rid of him. No, that's not God. He has integrity and he honors every choice he made. And the fact that he gave you life, he's not going to take it away because you are disobedient. But what does he do? He says, well, we can't exist together, so I'm going to have to provide a place for you to exist. We call that place the lake of fire. So it's not about duration. It's about the quality of life that we're talking about. And we don't already have that from Adam. Adam didn't have eternal life even when he was perfect in the garden. He did not have eternal life. Point three, eternal life is the quality of life God himself possesses and also where we are able to commune and fellowship with him. So this is the place where God and we have this same identity. We have the same life God has, which is eternal life. And this is not just for church age believers. This is for every person who uh, was ever born in Adam. They have, uh, if they believe in Christ, they can have eternal life. Eternal life didn't start at when Christ came, it came, it started um, with the first person who sinned. It was offered to them, and I would say that was Adam and the woman in the garden. Point four, the fact that we were born dead in Adam, we do not possess eternal life, but are gifted it by grace through Jesus Christ. And that's the, the clear verse in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at it. 1522, I believe. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. There it is. Now we're talking about the resurrection, but notice death in Adam, life in Christ. So the, the life that animates your resurrection body is not just uh just regular life that we have as human beings, we also have eternal life. So that's important to note. Um, and then um, point number five, having eternal life is synonymous with our being saved, right? So how do we get eternal life? Do we ask for it? Is it something? No, it's, it happens upon our belief. Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. The scripture says many times. Being justified. So if we're justified, that's another way we're saved. Justified or have life. Like it says in uh, uh, John 3.36, he who believes in him um, will have life. But he who does not believe will not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. So life is a reference to eternal life there. Or being born again. So if you have the human life, Jesus says, well, that's not good enough. 
you have to be born again. And sure enough, that's what he told Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Uh, point number six, to note, those in the lake of fire do not have eternal life. So don't look at the word and try to say, well, what does eternal mean forever? Okay, so no. So I just want to point out, no, those in the lake of fire, we already saw the verse where, so it says they have eternal punishment. That's not the same as eternal life. So we know it is not about duration. Let's just reiterate that. And then point number seven, when we believe in Christ, we have eternal life. Now that's now. The moment you do it, you possess eternal life now. But it begins after we are done with this temporal life by death or the rapture. So you have eternal life now. You're awake to God. You can have the benefits of fellowship and communion, all of that. But your eternal life truly begins when you step out of what we would call here temporal life. Why do we call it temporal life? Because uh, we know that the fact that we were born in Adam and we received the sentence Adam received, which is death, so that um, everybody born in Adam will not only die, is, is born dead spiritually speaking, but physically we will all die as a result of that. So as we look over the landscape, we can see that if the human beings, there are none who are uh, pre-flood. There are none who are post-flood. And uh, what about those people who lived 1,500, 2,000, 5,000 years? Abraham, where are they? They're all dead. They all died. None have survived. Death is a part of the landscape of, hum the, of the human race. And it is just like it says, it's appointed to man wants to die. Why is it appointed to man wants to die? It's because of what happened with Adam. But God gives eternal life. That reverses that. But not now. We're still going to die because your eternal life doesn't kick in until you die or the rapture. Once you die, your eternal life will take over. And that will be just, so really you're believing in Christ and you will have life after your temporal life. Of course, we don't know how long our temporal life is going to be. Don't count up to how many years you're going to live and, and then think, well, I got up until that time. Your life could be required of you any time. As James said, your life is but a vapor. You see it for one moment and then it's gone. It's like, what happened? It's just gone. But then you have passed out of this realm into a different one. So when he says your life is but a bit, he's talking about your life here. What he's really saying is temporary, it's short. So continuing, we're going to continue on. I think we got, oh, we're, we're going to make it. <laughs> Point D, this is Christ saying, I give them, we're just discovering all some scriptures about eternal life here. I give them eternal life, Christ says, and they shall never perish. Now, if you've been with me anytime, you know we've talked about this word never, how dogmatic that statement is of the, the Greek grammar that was used here, the construction, where Christ used not just one negative, but two. So, ume. Two negatives are 
in that word, never. So I give them eternal life and they shall never, with a double negative, perish. So you can't, there's no way in Christ's mind that you will ever perish. He even puts a stronger emphasis on that. So I can translate that, not just that they shall not perish or never perish, but they shall know not ever perish, you could say. No, not ever perish. So two negatives in English reverses it, but two negatives in Greek is for stronger emphasis. And that's what we have here. Ume. So, so it says, that, hey, I give them an eternal life. They shall know not ever perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Uh, it says, the hand of my hand. Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand and I and the father are one. So the father is greater than all. Think about that. The father is greater than all, but I and the father are one. This is a man talking. Just, just trying to help you understand this. How did the men Jesus was talking to understand this? They were enraged. And it says in the very next verse, which I don't have here in verse 31, you could read it. They picked up stones to stone him. They were incensed. So much so that they felt an execution is in order here. This person has committed blasphemy. Look, he's saying this father is greater than all. But then he says, I and the father are one. Wow. That's the, the, the new identity that was created when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Interesting. So there's a lot more I could say about this, but we're going to move forward. Point number three, to all those you have given him. We need to cover this, so stand by. I know we're probably over our time, but, but we're going to keep going. Point A. This is this last phrase, to all those you, Father, have given him, Christ. And those you have given him, and that is, the Father gives to the Son. Now, who are, to note, this is not a choosing certain ones for salvation, as some have concluded, right? Because earlier we were talking about the fact that some uh, religious teachings are that God has chosen certain ones for salvation from before time began. And obviously, if God chose them for salvation, well, they must be saved in time. And it is God's choosing of them that has caused them to be saved. That is the first cause of their salvation. Well, that is not. We've gone through Romans 9, and we have hopefully debunked that theory that conspiracy theory, we have that should not be something that you are thinking is true because of all that we have come through. But however, we do have a verse that does seem to imply, and I'm sure that they would cling to this verse and say, hey, you see, see this verse in John 17 too? It says it right here. Well, this is why we want to look at this verse in more detail. So, uh, but we do note that the Father, it does say that the Father gives to the Son. That is so. To note, this is not a choosing according to special uh, 
about salvation, as some have concluded. Point B, how are they given by the Father? We got to talk about this. This is key. So John, here it is, 644 and 45. Let's look at it. Um, this, this, to me, is the explanation of what does it mean by the Father giving some to the Son. And we are talking about salvation here. So let's see, John 644 and 45. I think this, this explanation does fit, but let's let it, let's read it. Uh, verse 44, no one can, now obviously this is in the context of people grumbling, right? Because this is the previous verse. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of, this is verse 42. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Of course, they, they don't know. So this is uh, 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. Now, so when the father, what does he mean he draws them? He draws them to Christ because Christ said it. No one can come to me. Right. So how, how do people come to him? It is because the father draws them. And when Christ says they, they come to him, he, they will be saved and he will raise them up at the last day. So now the Jews were rejecting this idea. This is why Jesus is even having to say this, because if, if they listened to, you know, if they, if they saw what Jesus did and they, they saw that, they understood that there's a context in which Jesus came. He didn't just come out of the blue. They would have said, now this, just like in Matthew when Jesus cast out the devil and the people there said, could this, is this the son of David? I mean, are we in the presence of the son of David here? And guess what the Pharisee says? No, 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 don't, don't think that. I know you're probably being drawn to think that. But really, he said, this is Beelzebub. This, is, this man's doing uh, evil by the power of evil. Don't look at him. Don't listen to him, right? And Jesus said, hold on here. All manner of sin and blasphemy can be forgiven you, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, well... Now, what is the Holy Spirit's role here? He was drawing those people to Christ. And that's why they were saying in their heads, hey, this must be the son of David. This must be the Messiah. And those Pharisees were the ones that were evil because they were saying, no, no, no. And they were trying to draw them away from Christ and back to them. So, in the same way, when we got this verse, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Well, draws them to who? Draws them to me. And I will raise them up at the last day. Now, you could say, what does that mean? And, and they love this verse. The uh, Calvinist, Reformed people, this is one they love, but they don't read the next verse. That's the problem. So let's read the next verse so we can understand what he means exactly. Well, I, I kind of put, put my two cents on it and then threw another verse in there. But let's read the next verse right in context. It is written in the prophets. Why are we going there, Jesus? They will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him, what? Comes to me. So Jesus is saying, 
This is in the Old Testament. And if you Jews understand your Bibles, <laughs> we say Bibles today, but they had the Law and the Prophets. And in the Law and the Prophets, they were all taught of God. God, it, the Holy Spirit was back there trying to draw them to the person of Christ. Notice, he's using this verse to help explain what he meant by all who, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is not about the Father uh, choosing them for salvation. It's them who have the choice of their salvation. It is in their hands. And the Father is only drawing them, enlightening them so that they can make the proper decision. So people are not just going to come out of the blue and to Jesus. It's going to be the drawing of the Father. Let's continue with this thought. Uh, and that verse where it says in 45, it, you know, where it says uh, all, where it says uh, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. That verse is in Isaiah 54, 13. If you'd like to read it exactly where... Uh, Jesus is quoting from. So you have not only Jesus referring you back to the Old Testament, to God's covenant people, the Jews, where they should have been taught of God and, and, and learned who Christ was, who the Messiah was, what works he would do, on and on. There's over 700 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming. And all they needed to do was be taught of God. There's a context for these people. And when Christ came, doing the works that he did, they should have been drawn to him by the Holy Spirit, but they didn't. They were not. So that's how they are given by the Father, right? That's explained by Jesus right there. Point C, Christ also said, and this is in John 12, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will, listen to this, will draw all people to myself. How are people drawn to Christ? How do people even know about Christ? Well, first of all, he says, when I am lifted up. That's another way of saying when I am crucified. It is the cross of Christ that the Holy Spirit uses to draw us to the person of Christ fact that he's the one who died for our sins, was buried and rose again. And the Holy Spirit is the one who goes out and convicts the hearts of unbelievers because they don't believe in Christ. Right? Remember of sin, of righteousness and judgment. We, we get all that from John 16, 8 through 11 of sin because they do not believe in me. Well, Christ was crucified for our sins. When I am lifted up from the earth, Christ says, when I'm crucified, will draw all people to myself. He's not just talking about the Jews. He's talking about Gentiles too. But for Jews, there's a context as what we just said. Notice, if you look at John chapter 12, the context is that two Greeks came and were fascinated with Jesus. And they wanted an audience with him. So they went to the disciples, they talked to one, Andrew, and Andrew went and got another one, and they didn't know what to do. So finally they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, these Gentiles want to have an audience with you. And that's when Jesus began to talk like this. 
except a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, etc., etc. And then he says here in verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So that literally is Gentiles, the whole world. Never mind if you have a Jewish background or culture, God the Holy Spirit can use that to help draw you to Christ. Well, no. He's saying all people whether you're Jew or Gentile, you'll, the Holy Spirit will witness to you the cross, what, what God actually did for the sin problem. <clears throat> Point D, the Father draws them to Christ through the preparation of the Holy Spirit. That is how it works. However, for many in Israel, there was staunch resistance. As we already know from Acts 7, 51 and 52. <clears throat> I have to read this. Acts 7, 51 and 52 says, you stiff-necked people. This is Stephen before he was stoned to death by the scribes, Pharisees. Right? He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. What was about their ancestors that was unique? They always resist the Holy Spirit. So there you have it. Now, the Father, Jesus is saying the Father will draw you through the prophets, right? Through the Old Testament. But their forefathers in those times developed a pattern of resistance to uh, the the spirit. So here it is right here. I, I'm not saying that. Here it's saying it. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Right? Just like your ancestors. And then verse 52, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. They were incensed with Stephen's words. And you know what happened just couple minutes later. So in this, our point to make here is about the Father drawing them to Christ, right? This is what it means, what Jesus says, to all those you have given me. Jesus says, no one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws them. This is the way it works. And yet, we, that was more for Jews, but for Gentiles, we are drawn by when Christ is lifted up from the earth. That's what he said. Yeah, hopefully you see that point. Last point here to make is no one can be saved without the enlightening work of the Spirit. You cannot see Jesus until the Spirit reveals him as the Savior of the world. That is absolutely true. Nobody just stumbles upon Jesus and says, well, you know, I think I'll believe in him. No, it's the Spirit's enlightenment. What, what does it say about us? It says not only that we're under sin, we're spiritually dead. We, none of us can do anything righteous. We're, our thoughts are controlled by Satan. Often, that's in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He is, has power over us. So what is God, the Holy Spirit? He has a job to do in order to enlighten us to the true issues of not only our condition in Adam, but to the glorious Savior 
of the world, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father. We are privileged to be a part of this particular age where you have called out many sons into glory. Father, we will forever be learning this in all of our days here. And we pray that you will give us wisdom so that we know how to handle ourselves, how to behave in this world as those who are sons. Uh, we thank you for those who are here, and those who have uh, attended this church and listened uh, to the messages, and we pray that they will go far and wide in this world. Others may come to know the glorious gospel as well as the full knowledge of the truth. All this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.